You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good evening and welcome to Grace Matters, uh, where we bring grace to bear on matters of importance to the local church. My name is Neil Manning and one of, I'm one of the elders here at Grace Community Church. And uh, I'm really excited to have you here and I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from our panelists this evening. Uh, we, we will be joining, rejoining a conversation that we began last year uh, about grace and race or issues of ethnicity and diversity within church. Um, and we're, tonight we'll be adding two additional voices to that conversation as we continue. But before we hear from them, I want to hear from the Word of God. And as context, uh, a lot has happened in not only American society, but within the American church as well, between the time that we met uh, to discuss this last year and now. We've had events like MLK 50, uh, celebrating the, the strides that Martin Luther King Jr. had made uh, in, during his lifetime. And then there was a lot of uh, flurry of communication among conservative Christians in the wake of that. And then this fall, only a, a couple of months ago, an additional, not an event, but a communication went out called the, the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. And that, likewise, has generated a lot of discussion. Uh, it's, we have to wait to see how much of it is heat and how much of it is light. But uh, these are two very big things that happened within Christendom or within the Christian community, even since we last met to discuss this. But first, let's look at the different poles that we often think of as opposing one another, but they're not. And, and we'll get into that, I'm sure, here. Uh, to begin, let's look at Micah 6.8. Um, God, speaking through the prophet, says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. A lot of times we tend to focus on that first, first portion, to do justice. But it's important that we take all of it, uh, justice and mercy, and that's to love kindness. But we must walk humbly with our God. So we tend to think of that as one extreme of gospel implication. And on the other is Galatians 3.8 where Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, to state the obvious, these are not two different positions. This is truth from the one God. From Genesis to Revelation, uh, it's all God's truth, and it all fits together. And that's what we're going to discuss here tonight. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting gospel truth through the experience of our two panelists, and I hope you are as well. And you see at the bottom of that slide also some additional passages that you may want to look at during our time. But before, we, before I introduce the panel, let me lead us in a word of prayer to the Lord. Father God, thank you for gathering us here this evening. I pray that all that is done here is honoring to you. Build us up in your truth. Let us 
realize and live out the unity that we have in Christ. Let all that is done here this evening be honoring to you. We submit it to the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've got some hopefully familiar faces for you this evening. Some more than others, I'm sure. Um, Sean Cross joins us once again. He was youth pastor for a while here at Grace and father, husband, and now pastor of Church Plant Union Church in Northeast D.C. And Semi, I'll say Semi Arius Ray, uh, just because for those who may be listening and not able to see, she will be representing our Hispanic community as well on the panel. Um, mother and wife, and also ministers here at Grace on the, uh, the music ministry team. So it's, it's wonderful having both of you with us. So as we get started with furthering dis- the discussion about diversity, about race, and the church, where, where the gospel fits in, let me ask a couple of questions. Um, first to both of you, just so we can get to know who you are a little bit more in case we haven't seen you in a while or haven't seen much of you. So tell us about your ongoing connection with Grace Community Church and what place race, if it had any place, that it had to do in your coming to Christ or your walk with Christ. So, um, I'm sorry, can you repeat the, the first part of the question again? Uh, what's your connection here at Grace? Um, well, I started coming here probably around 19 years old. I know I became a member in um, 2016. And um, I came from a Catholic church. Um, and at that Catholic church, it like I was in the Spanish choir. It was like an all, they had all Spanish mass all English mass, but I only went to the all Spanish mass um, just because of, you know, that's just what my family went to and how I grew up. Um, So coming here was very different, but I heard the message here and I heard the gospel here and that's what brought me here. So uh, I started going to Grace my freshman year uh, of college at Campbell University back in like Tulum. And, um, <laughs> and I've, I can't, went all four years of college, uh, fifth year for my, uh, waiting for my wife to graduate. I uh, went to RTS in Orlando for two years and came back to serve uh, at Grace. So the connection to Grace is deep, it's, it's strong. Brad married Melissa and I, um, and in a lot of ways, uh, Grace is where I grew up in the faith and grew up in the Lord. Um, left here in 2014, almost five years now, uh, to go plant a church in D.C. where I, like, where I grew up, and, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's the connection to Grace. Um, the, the question about race and connection to the faith or the church, 
Like, that's a, that's a little bit harder. Um, and I, I think maybe it's an important beginning to sort of talk about the way that we use the word race. Uh, because race, in a lot of ways, has become shorthand for a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so it can be shorthand for cultural characteristics or uh, just kind of stereotypes about a person. Race can be shorthand for this kind of invisible phenomenon that like can governs our society. Um, race can be shorthand for the color of your skin. Um, and and it's, its use and the ways that it becomes shorthand for different thing, things tend to change depending on the intention of the user, right? And so that becomes really difficult then to pin down. So when you say race, uh, you know, I may think in more in terms of my blackness, but even that's a little bit difficult to talk about because my family's not of like African-American descent per se. Like we're black, but my, my family was from Jamaica. And so my mom immigrated here from Jamaica. And so my story and my connection to America and blackness is different, right? You know, I grew up in DC. Most of the black people I knew in DC had family members in North Carolina or South Carolina because during the Great Migration, the people who went to DC came from this region. The Great Migration isn't my family's story. Um, and so when you talk about race, it becomes difficult to, to answer sometimes these questions. So if you speak in terms of my blackness, like I grew up in Fairfax County, Virginia, um, which was a very, uh, even in, in the late 80s, early 90s, a very sort of socially progressive uh, suburban community. In schools, we were taught color blindness. We were taught that color doesn't matter not to see color. And I think the same sort of thing was um, was kind of upheld in the churches that we went to when I was especially middle and high school, which uh, were predominantly white churches. Um, and so the idea was color blindness. And so um, while it was kind of like this idea that like I was never taught to explore how my ethnic identity or how my cultural identity or how my racial identity was both valued by God and redeemed in Christ. Um, it was sort of like put, put on the side so that the only thing that matters really is, in, and this isn't true of all sort of conservative evangelical churches or circles, but the only thing that matters is sort of the soul. Right, like it was very heaven-centered, and heaven was like where souls go, you know what I'm saying? And, and so the body didn't matter quite as much as the soul. And so if race is connected to skin color, is connected to the body, then the experiences of someone who's black in Northern Virginia, which were very different from my white friends, um, also didn't have as much of an impact uh, as as my soul. So I, I know that's really a complicated roundabout way of getting there, but it's all just very jumbled up like that. Yeah, well, it, it makes a, a great point that a discussion on this, this type of topic is not simple. 
because people aren't simple. We're, we're not superficial. There, there's a lot to every individual, and every individual is different. Our history is different. Our makeup is different. So I think that's a great point to, to remember. And you brought up the issue of language, terms, hot-button words, which is one I want to return to. But before we do, I want to turn back to Sammy and, and ask you, you had mentioned um, your experience in the, in the Catholic Church uh, having two different services. Can you explain a little more about that experience and maybe what, what lesson we can learn? Yeah, so um, there was an English Mass and a Spanish Mass, and um, they actually had like four or five Masses, because I'm pretty sure there was a Youth Mass too, which was in English, but I mean, obviously the, the younger Hispanics could probably speak more English, so. Um, I understood like, you know, the need for a Spanish service, um, especially in the Catholic community because um, like just being Mexican, the majority of people are Catholic, if not your Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> but um, it definitely felt like we were separated. Like I never knew any white people from my church. People never in, church. in a, I, I mean, except for the music leader who he he was he led the Spanish chorus um, also. Um, he was also my piano teacher. I had a really good relationship with him. But um, he, I know he tried to do like bilingual things and we had a bilingual Easter service every single year. And I think that, I, I'm not really sure why they did it. Um, I don't know if people were asking for that or if they were just trying to, you know, put us together. Um, I know they tried a Christmas, a bilingual Christmas service one year, and we did it once. There wasn't a lot of people, so I don't think it was a problem of how many people were there, like it was, if it was too many people. They never did it again. And I'm not really sure why that happened, it just, they had two separate services, and um, it just felt like, I never felt connected with people there. Um, the Hispanic community, I feel like, within our own race, and just like people from different Hispanic countries, um, whether that be Dominican Republic, Puerto Rican, Salvadorian, Honduran, Guatemalan and Mexican, like I felt like we all had this prejudice against one another. So like even within our own church or like within people that I just knew, like in the Hispanic community, it just felt like we all didn't get along very well. And like we were just, you know, close to our family and like no one's better than our family and like we're better than everyone else. and they're this way and we're this other way and it just it was never you stayed inwardly focused yeah. yeah so it 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 wasn't a welcoming place i didn't even have a relationship with the priest there um i actually um 
didn't like to confess. I confessed once, hmm. and that was for our first communion. Because um, they took you into the room with the priest, and I just I felt like uncomfortable. I didn't know this guy, like, and he just kind of looked at you <laughs> like really <laughs> seriously, and it it wasn't comfortable for me. So I didn't take communion for years because of that, because I didn't go confess, because, I mean, if you don't go confess, you can't take communion. So it was just my experience there, compared to my experience here, is like polar opposites. Here I feel like I'm part of a family. I don't feel like I'm ever discriminated against. I, I don't know, I feel like I belong here. We do, and we're, we're glad you do. Um, you began to touch on it. Uh, just trying to imagine maybe you can explore a little bit more the, the change that you felt um, within the dynamics of the church, having come to Christ, now in Christ, but in a community that is outside of your, your family, outside of your national I- identity. Is that um, does that stay with you? Um, is it conscious or only in instances where the the conversation is forced? I don't know. Well, um, I don't know. Like when I'm with my family, I still like hear them say like make little comments here and there that I feel and I. I I hate throwing this word out there, but, like, I feel like are just racist. And, like, I I mean, I grew up with them. I grew up with these people. And I wouldn't necessarily say my parents, because I I felt like my parents were, I mean, they they only, they never really cared about people outside of themselves, so they didn't really care what other people were doing. But, like, other close relatives just, you know, kind of say things here and there that just always, like, push me the wrong way. Like, I don't know. I just... It may not always be race-focused. It's just because you're connected with people outside of the family. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, like, even, like, being with Joshua, um, they liked that he was white. (laughs) You know, like, there was some sort of, um, like, for for some reason, that was better than dating a Mexican or a black person. And um, I mean, I never really cared. I I just dated him because I liked him. So they were like, oh, it's so excited. They were like, oh, your kids are gonna have colored eyes and this and that. And then (laughs) when Jaden came out looking (laughs) like me, (laughs) my, (laughs) I'm not gonna say who, but somebody asked me, they're like, how does Joshua feel about how Jaden looks? And I was like, he loves it. Like, that's his favorite part about him. <laughs> like, he loves that he looks like me because he loves me for me. And he wants his kids to look like me because, I mean, that's why we're together. <laughs> so it was it was disappointing and um, to hear that from a family member when... I looked like that too. <laughs> but understandable too, because not only 
a status symbol, mm -hmm. but I think we all have um, a curiosity about things or people who are different than us. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that curiosity comes across as fear or anger or, or hatred or pride. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, it's, what do you think of your child's eyes? Um, there are different ways that we can express these things. And I think the analogy that you had there of the love and acceptance within your core family is great for the church family, mm -hmm. that those who are connected in Christ to the, the one local body, we can recognize those differences without having it matter. Mm -hmm. to, it's not a basis for our, our love and relationship. So, Sean, let me turn over to you and, and ask you, um, as you think about the geographical transitions that you've had in your lifetime, moving from urban or suburban metropolitan Virginia down to suburban or, or even rural North Carolina, and now you're in the heart of, of D.C., what are some of the, the differences or difficulties that, that you've experienced whether that's ethnic or religious? Uh, I mean, like I think some things are helpful having been kind of in a lot of different settings. Um, so number one, like, I mean, we're in the South and people who've lived in the South at all long enough who are from the South, especially people from the South. And, and I mean, growing up in Northern Virginia, uh, People like to pretend that it's not the South somehow, um, but you know that you know the stereotypes about the South, right? Like you know what Northern folks think about the South and about racism in the South. But I think one of the things that's just the reality is that racism isn't unique to the South, um, and it's just masked and looks differently in different parts of the country. Um, and uh, rural, urban, it doesn't matter. Like, I think one of the things I see living in urban DC where you have a lot of uh, very progressive, affluent, well-educated white people who would look down on sort of Southern folks is that racism just takes a different form. Um, and and it's just gentrification to the extent of like, just no regard for the people who are there. Um, and, and kind of a looking down, like these things that were here before, they had no value, they had no, like any cultural value that they have are because we find them interesting and like we find them to be like a textbook that we can learn and feel more educated and whatever about. Um, and so you still see like it just takes different forms um, and you get to hide behind different things. Um, and, and I think that was surprising, you know, like I think coming to the South uh, when I did like to the South because, I mean, even though I was in Virginia, like, I'd seen one Confederate flag and 
I know people feel many kinds of ways about the Confederate flag. I'd seen one before I moved to North Carolina, um, and then there was no point in counting, right? Like, and, and so when you talk about like moving to the South and like proud of Southern heritage, um, I think I expected, I was on my guard more. Um, but what happened though is that when I went back because my eyes were kind of looking out, like when I went back up north, I was able to see the things that I couldn't see before. Like the subtle ways that like systems or that, that uh, neighborhood structures, the ways that laws are changed um, in order to facilitate a certain um, type of person moving to a neighborhood and to sort of sig signify to another group of people that this neighborhood is no longer for them. Um, it's, it's uh, in some ways, it's a little more insidious. Um, but, but I didn't have eyes to see it before. Um, and I, I did now. Um, I, you know, it's hard because there are just so many, so many overlapping realities, like class is a big part of it, and DC is becoming a classist city. Um, and when you look at racial and ethnic disparity along class lines, then you see like, all right, so DC is also becoming a very white city. Um, and and that might not mean much, but I mean, when I was growing up, DC was Chocolate City. That's just what we <laughs> called it. Um, and we had mumbo sauce and we had go-go music and we had like DC culture that is by and large, you just don't see as much or it's kind of like a, I don't know, modified hipster version of it. So I don't know. Uh, Again, that's a, you're bringing out a great theme that it, it's never just race by itself or ethnicity. There's there's nationality involved. There's um, subcultures involved. There's classes involved. There's um, economic, uh, all all different layers coming together to make people and people coming together to make a layered society uh, where it's it's not a simple problem. And there's rarely a simple solution. We know that in Christ, Christ is the ultimate solution, but yet we struggle with it down here. Uh, I'm wondering from you, Sean, how did seeing those different cultures impact the way you navigated church or church life? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so, uh, if you haven't read The Souls of Black Folk by W.B. Du Bois, you should. Um, because I know that if you knew me at Grace for the extended time that I was here, and then you've seen maybe some of the things that I've posted on social media before, I just decided that I just needed to not be in the cesspool at all. Um, or hear some of the things that I say, it might be like surprising. Some things might be a little surprising, but uh, he, uh, Du Bois talks about double consciousness. Um, and I, I think of it, I think of it like 
bilingual. Like, but being bilingual is not just about knowing the right words. Like, being truly bilingual is you can slide in and out of the idioms, you know the jokes, you, you hear the wordplay, right, in both. And I think having grown up both black and in predominantly white Northern Virginia and, and being in predominantly white churches, um, you just learn to be bilingual. Another word for it is code switching. You know, you learn how to navigate the circles that you're in to minimize the impact on your spirit. Uh, and sometimes you do that even before, and oftentimes you'll do it. And, and I think, so like, I think a lot of black people who are in predominantly white spaces understand this and you have to know like, it's kind of like a sensitive thing and so you're even getting let into something right now and I, I'm just, you know, like, just so you know, this is like, but you even before, like, especially before you have a chance to get hurt or to get like, just to be othered, I don't know how else to say it. Um, you adapt and code switch so as to be a part of that community. And so for me, um, I mean, what happened was that in college, um, <clears throat> I went from, I don't know what about God to really, really, really reformed, like really reformed. Um, and so that sort of solidified that the communities that I was gonna be in a part of, at least theologically and ecclesiologically, were gonna be predominantly white. Um, and uh, so then you, you do what you have to do to be, and so you could be in a situation, I could be in a situation, when I'm, when I'm home, like, when I'm home with, like, my family, uh, let me back that up, when I'm with my extended family, so, like, my mom and my uncles and them, um, there's a language that will speak, and because they're Jamaican, and Melissa will sometimes be like, I feel like you're, like, faking a Jamaican accent right now. <laughs> But it's just words and it's things that go there. But then if I'm like in D.C. with like D.C. people, like there's just things that we say and, and like I wouldn't preach it from grace, right? I would never say I'm siced at grace um, because that to me, that belongs over here. And I learned how to put it over here so as to be understood and honestly like to, and not all black people will do this, I, I did, it was my mechanism. But it was because I recognized pretty early on that even though slang and even though how you speak are really just cultural, uh, and even though Southern people with the twang should understand this just as much as anyone, the way you speak will determine for a group of people immediately how qualified, how intelligent, how worth listening to you are, right? You guys go, to, like, I was shocked when I heard my first Southern professor at Campbell and was like, this dude is smart, <laughs> right? Because, because of the images that get played. So now consider that with, like, blackness or with Latino and Hispanic people. Like, when black people t talk black, 
there's an assumption that they are uneducated, they are uh, irreverent, they're whatever, but I mean, I would contend that the hip hop that I grew up on, um, some of the people in that Q-Tip, Black Thought, uh, uh, Chuck D, like some of those, Karis, like they are some of the most educated, intelligent people that I've ever heard speak. It's just that I didn't, I wasn't put off by the slang. And so code switching or that bilingualness is like when I'm with my people, I'm with my people, I can relax. And I mean, that's sad to say because Grace is also my people, but when you're black in a predominantly white situation, you're never like completely free. I can understand the... I don't know how else to say it. I can understand altering uh, behavior in order to navigate. And I think being able to navigate those different cultures and subcultures in many ways is a, a good thing. Um, so, so to both of you, but uh, also over to, to Semi, do you feel like in navigating multiple cultures, you have to hide or change who you are? So, um, I really don't feel like I change much about myself whenever I'm within different cultures. Um, I, I don't know if Joshua can speak for me. He's not here, so. <laughs> he could probably point it out if I did. Um, but I'm kind of like an introvert, so I don't even put myself out there like that very much, talk with people. It's hard for me to talk to people. Um, I, um, so like just my social life is just not, you know, that great. So <laughs> <laughs> I just <laughs> It's easy to navigate because you don't say anything yeah. in any culture. Right? <laughs> and it's, I hang out with, um, like my best friends are Hispanic and they'll say, oh, like you're more Hispanic if you do this and that and like I really don't feel that Hispanic because of these labels that they put on us and these stereotypes and they say oh I'm so white and I mean I grew up in Fuquay elementary middle and high school <laughs> so I've lived here all my life and this is all I know and the culture here is I mean, I, I know Mexican culture, of course, but I don't have to be different. And um, I feel like even my family, they are already different from the majority of the Mexican culture that is here in North Carolina, just because of the different states that they came from. Um, there's different cultures in Mexico and the kind of music that you listen to. And so like even they were different, so that made me even more different. <laughs> so like even with my his Mexican friends, um, I was, you know, I didn't relate that much. And um, so yeah, like my, my friends are Hispanic. I have one, Me well, two Mexican friends and a Dominican friend. I have three friends. Um, <laughs> and um, I mean, we're all like my 
two Mexican friends come from different places in Mexico. Their families grew up differently than mine did. Um, and my Dominican friend, she's very Dominican. <laughs> but um, she, she also goes to the Dominican Republic a lot more often than I do Mexico, which is never so. Um, so do, do you think recognizing the vast array of differences within a single culture helps when you look to other cultures? It's easier yes. to accept people because yes. every, everybody's different. Mm -hmm. And like I, I, it definitely helped me because I was already different and I was already an <laughs> introvert. So it's like I just You're more was able and willing to accept other people's differences. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was easier just to be me. No. That's similar for you, Sean. I see you nodding. Yeah, I, I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful in the conversation again when you talk about race as shorthand to understand that when you use shorthand, then you necessarily uh, you, you necessarily make people groups monolithic mm -hmm. when they're not. Yeah. Um, and so, just like you were talking about being in different states, and just like we could, we could talk about with like a New England white person. Uh, a southern white person, a Midwestern, a Californian. Like in DC, we called southern black people Bamas. Um, and that's just what we did, you know? And so, and then coming to the South, it was like very, you know, like it was okay, cool, different people, but there were still, but over all of that, like when you're, you're American and then you go to like Europe, and you see another American and you're like, oh, you're from California? I'm from Florida. We would have never met, but this is so great to see an American here, right? <laughs> like in the same way, it kind of happens like that, where it's like, okay, so you're a little more outcast, I'm a little more Wale, but, but we're good, right? Like we're, we're good. And, and so yeah, like it's helpful to remember that because I can't speak for all black people and I would never pretend to, I would never, I can speak to my experience and I can say with some degree of certainty that black people who have lived in the same experiences that I have would share, would find much commonality, but every experience would be different. So you've brought up several times, just in a short time, the importance of the words we use and the assumptions that we make when we either use or hear different words. So a lot of times when we begin a conversation, say on the topic of race and ethnicity, and we find out the person we're talking to is of a different position, that conversation doesn't seem to go anywhere because we make assumptions of the use of the words that are being spoken. So for both of you, can you talk about what hot-button words that we should look out for? Uh, how can we scale that language barrier in order to further a conversation, not just to lob shots at each other? So, probably um, one hot-button word for me would probably, just because of my personal experience, would be illegal immigrants. Um, I feel like when you say it that way, <laughs> and I, I'm not one to really take much offense to anything, really. But um, and even and people have said that to me, and I, I really, I don't care. I don't really fight very much. So, um, <laughs> um, I feel like saying undocumented is much better because of the kind of 
assumptions that might come with illegal immigrant. It just makes me sound like I'm doing something wrong or <laughs> I am an undocumented immigrant. So, I don't know, when you just say it that way, just you're already pointing out that I've broken the law and maybe you have some sort of opinions about that. So, um, it takes a lot of courage even to, to talk about that. So how can the, the family of God come around you and alleviate that burden that you're carrying? Um, I feel like asking me about it is actually okay and I want to share about it because I want more people to be informed because I don't feel like there are a lot of people who know much about it because, you know, when it's, when it's not your problem, you're not going to really worry about it. And there's not a lot of people, especially here at Grace, that have to deal with that. So um, I, I think it's important to discuss it. So I, I think if people want to come and ask me about it, I am perfectly fine. If you have specific questions about things that might be going on, like with the DACA, DACA or Dreamers, um, you know, I, I mean, I've looked into a lot of this stuff because, you know, I'm trying to figure things out myself. And um, if you just want to know, like, you know, what's going on and what I'm having to deal with and having to work through, I'm okay with you asking me if that will make you more informed and be willing to help. Sean, how can we better use and define our terms so we avoid unnecessary offense? That's a, that's a, that's a difficult question, right? Because <laughs> um, I feel like we've all been in situations where we've tried to avoid offense um, and failed miserably. Um, but I think language does matter and words um, still have context and meaning and belong to schools of thought. Um, and so if you, you know, for example, like I think it's really exploring what do these words mean and not just, um, not just hanging on to your assumptions. So like what does race mean? Or even like more importantly, what is race? Because I think there's an assumption that race is an inherent or innate thing, even though race, the way that we use it, didn't exist 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Let me do math better. 430-something years ago, right? Like, the word race did exist, but not the way that we use it. Um, and the things that we assume about it. So for example, we assume that you can define certain characteristics biologically from this construct of race. Uh, biologically speaking, that's not true. We assume that race sort of happened naturally, and then as a result of sin, racism came. That's also not historically true. Uh, racism preceded the concept of race. 
And when you begin to study that, it changes race the way we use it. Mm -hmm. When you study that, it begins to change how you use the word. Now, we can't get around the word. We're a racialized society. Um, but I think better understanding word, race, racism, uh, any phrase that has white in the beginning of it, you know them all, and they make you all uncomfortable, I'm sure. Um, but exploring them in the school that they belong to. So there, these race is a social construct, whiteness is a social construct, they belong to sociology. We pull them out of sociology and lob them like bombs, go back to sociological study and see the, like, the, where these words emerge from and what they mean in their proper context. And I think that will help to a certain degree. Uh, but we don't have a language problem. We have a heart problem. Yeah, that's um, and so you can use whatever words you want at the end of the day without regenerate hearts that are humbly believing the gospel. Um, we're going to find ways to turn any words into weapons. Yeah, I think it's helpful, too when you brought up sociology, if we take these schools of social thought and compare them to scripture, because all truth is God's truth, so wherever the social sciences have truth or have discovered truth, we should be able to incorporate that into our biblical worldview with the recognition that along with society's promulgation of that thought is a ton of baggage that we do not want to incorporate. You mentioned groups not being monolithic. Uh, I think it's important also to recognize that words, just as you were describing, words can have different denotations as well as connotations depending on who's using them, how they're being used. Um, so let's move that into the, the theological realm, the realm of discussions within the church, um, what, what assumptions, what baggage do we tend to bring when reading or interpreting scripture in the areas of ethnicity and race? How does it affect our, our view? Which is very similar, I mean, everything you've been saying is similar to the question that has been submitted so far is how do you make the conversation less uncomfortable? So talking about the Bible, I think um, <clears throat> uh, I think the church in America as a whole has become woefully ignorant to theology um, and as such has no idea what lens, what hermeneutic, what lens they're using to read the Bible. And most Americans, and, and I, I say Americans because that's who I know, <laughs> right? Like, we, most people don't think that they're using a lens to read the Bible. And so they think it's self-evident that the Bible says what they read out of it. And so Reformed people can't understand how Arminians read the Bible and get there, right? Pado baptists can't understand how Baptists 
credo Baptist or whatever, read the Bible and get there. It's because like they, we, 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 we read as though we have just no biases whatsoever. Um, and I think also that that has happened in terms of Eurocentricity and the way we read the Bible. Um, we, we, we tend to put on pedestals theologians, uh, mostly just like Protestant theologians, right? Which makes sense. We're Protestant. But the church began before 1517. And it began before Europe, right? Like before Europe as it's composed now. Um, and the church and like the theological frameworks of the church began in Africa, right? And moved west into like Western Europe. And, and I think sometimes because we, we land on, and I was as guilty of this as anyone, we land on the reformers or we land on the Protestant traditions, we assume that what they're presenting, the way that they think about the Bible, the, the, the ways that they <clears throat> talk about maturity in the faith, that that's just Christian and not contextualized. Um, and so we tend to define Christian maturities in ways that when you parse it out, sometimes have less to do with Christian maturity and more to do with just cultural, like, assimilation. Right? And so Christian maturity in a home in Africa where the dynamic between husband and wife may be vastly different than in southern evangelical United States, sometimes we can tend to say, oh, well, he's not being the head of the home there. When, he, when that's just an assumption based on the fact that this is how we fleshed out what that means. I don't know if that makes sense. And so, like, the assumptions we pull from the Bible oftentimes are shaped by the assumptions we bring into it when we start reading it. There's nothing we can do about that except be aware of it. And when we're aware of it, what happens is that we can be more gracious with other people who read the Bible, like, differently. Or who read the Bible and see things that we don't. And sometimes we can even learn from them. I mean, when you consider that most of the Bible is written by either oppressed or marginalized or displaced people... Like, that should have, that should shape the way we read the scriptures. But it's hard for us to because we read it mostly from a place of affluence and privilege. Right? And so we just have to be very careful to, to be honest about the framework that we come to scripture with. And so we have to be more theological. We have to have better categories than just like, just whatever the Bible says. Yes, whatever the Bible says. But don't presume that like you... We, I. There's no interpretive process going just, on. Yeah, yeah. That we're not interpreting or applying a hermeneutic to the scriptures. I'll echo exactly what you're saying uh, with these two things. Um, 
I've heard it said different ways, but readers of the Bible who come to the Bible thinking they have no hermeneutic or no creed are the most dangerous kind because they're unaware of their biases. And then that's a, a point that I've learned throughout studying church history is that the, the bad guys are never as bad as we want them to be. And the good guys are way more messed up than we would like. And the effect that should have on us is we ought to be humble knowing that God uses broken vessels like me. But we should be gracious in accepting views that are different than ours, approaches that are different than ours, and then measure them against the standard that is above all of us. Um, let me follow this up. Sammy, do you, have you noticed that your reading and understanding of the Bible has, has changed? Uh, I, I know it has because we're all growing, but would issues of ethnicity even enter the picture into how you have grown? Um, I, I don't think issues of ethnicity really have, you know, been part of my Bible reading or interpretation. Um, when I didn't read much of the Bible whenever I was at Catholic Church. Um, they had these little books where they had scripture that was supposed to be part of that mass for that Sunday. It was, it was dated for every single Sunday of the year. Um, and they used that and they read it, you know, in the order that they did and he would preach about it and it would usually end up about the same message every Sunday stop watching TV, stop watching soccer, pay attention to church and do good and come confess. So I don't feel like I even learned anything. I really didn't even understand why Jesus died on the cross. So um, before I started or before I decided to become a member here at Grace, I was trying to read the Bible more because of some discussions that Jeshua and I had had um, like him talking about my religion and like why I defended it so much. I was like, you know what, I just, I just want to study more. And I was considering being confirmed into the Catholic Church and I, I came to a service here one Sunday and just it being Jesus focused changed my entire like understanding of what the gospel meant and what everything was being said in the Bible. I, I think that's sorry to cut you off. I was just okay. going to interject that I think it's a great point to bring up, to focus on that Christ, his person and his work is not only the basis for our relationship with God, but the basis of our relationship with one another, that it's no demographic can be the, the foundation for how we interact with one another. Even though we must recognize our differences, it's not the foundation for that relationship. Yeah. So is it 
do you think it's important to continue discussions like this within the church? Is race a thing that we need to keep addressing? This is for both of you. And uh, why? Yeah. <laughs> Good answer. Can you? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Well, because number one, it continues to be a problem. Like, we can't avoid that. We can't avoid the reality in which we live. Um, and so, even, like, even if you just turn on the news and, I mean, something as stupid as, and I'm not, we're not going into it, but something as stupid as both the, the, the statement and the response to Megyn Kelly, right? Y'all don't live under a rock, right? Maybe not. If you do, you can Google it, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm not here to talk about that. I'm just here to talk about the... I'm just trying to say that that, like, the response to that shows a divide. And the existence of the divide is a problem. And that means that we must be addressing that. That's from just a social standpoint. We need to be talking about this. From a religious standpoint, like... And I'm going to answer one of the questions that you asked, like how my reading of the scripture has changed and how is like, um, <clears throat> and if you want like the long form of this, you could talk to me afterwards. But basically after Trayvon, um, I couldn't help but see justice everywhere in the scripture. And not only that, I couldn't help but see it not as tangential to the gospel, but a part of what God is doing in the gospel. The gospel, for me, got bigger. It is God saving people through Jesus because God is redeeming all things to himself in Jesus. God is restoring all things, making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new is the gospel. And central to that is Jesus incarnate, living the life that he lived, dying, being resurrected, and ascending into heaven and coming back. So all of this story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation is the gospel. And a part of that consummation, a part of that gospel is the reconciliation of all people. Of all peoples, I should say. Maybe not all people, but all people groups. Every tribe, tongue, nation, right? Central to the gospel is, if he, which you had up there, I think, Ephesians 2, right? Uh, for, he, for he, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Right? And that's where we tend to say, like, see, there's the gospel. But, like, Paul isn't done. Like, he's, <laughs> like, he's welcome. Is the blood of the Messiah. And he's going right back in. He's going all the way in. And he says, uh, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Now, lest we read this as the dividing wall of hostility between us and God, he keeps going. And he said, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself, from the two, one new man. One new man, resulting in peace. 
like the mission of God in Christ Jesus is it's corny, but it'll stick with you. It's new manity, right? Like one new man, one new people of every ethnic group. And so what's interesting in that is that we don't lose our ethnic identity, and at the same time, we are all, when we are one, this expression of a new humanity. And God is doing that. Like, that's central to the work. It's not the primary, right? The primary goal is what? The glory of God. The central action is the work of Jesus Christ. That happens through regenerate hearts and redeemed people. But what's the end result? What is God working towards? New heavens and a new earth and a new manity, right? New man. Um, and so uh, when, I, when I see that, I say we have to talk because as long as there's black church, white church, as long as Christians have to code switch, as long as, as, long as we fail to mourn with those who are mourning, so when there's injustice or when there's a controversial killing and our first posture is defensive instead of I see you, my brother or my sister, weeping and I'm just going to meet you in your mourning, like then we have work to do and we have to talk about race. That, that's where I'm at. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you each a moment to um, take a look at the, the questions that are popping up on the screen and, and decide if and how you would would answer them. Um, I'm going to put in a quote that I heard recently from Alistair Begg. He was speaking on the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and about Lloyd-Jones's ministry. He said this, that Lloyd-Jones understood Christian unity this way. Christian unity is not something to be created, it is something to be discovered. I thought that was very poignant, very well said, and I, I may just add to that, that discovery takes work. Yeah, I was going to say, doesn't he go on to say, and also Christian unity is to be contended for? Content, yeah, it's, we, we need to maintain like, it, yeah. yeah. So, it's both a gift and it's something that we have to fight for. That's right. And I mean, Jones was a beast. So, yeah. <laughs> so before we, uh, we're going to take a look at some resources that we would uh, recommend. Do you want to address any of the, these questions that have popped up? So the first one, um, I feel like if we as true believers, as real, real Christians who love all people, um, if we can really make disciples of ourselves, hmm. get come out of our comfort zone and just talk to people, all people. And I feel like it's not very hard to do here in Harnett County or even Wake County, you know. Um, I feel like if we are doing the Great Commission, you know, what we are called to do, then we will see a difference. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we're not, 
I think Grace Community Church is doing a great job. Um, persist in the, the good work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just be persistent about it. So really, evangelism, discipleship, that's keeping the main thing, the main thing. Jesus called us to make disciples. Yeah. It used to be that we needed to go out to the nations, and now God is bringing the nations to us here at our doorstep. I think that last one is true, not just to predominantly white middle class churches, but all churches, or that first question. Uh, and what I'd say, what I, I try to practice, which I guess is ironic saying on a panel where I'm talking a lot, um, is just heed the scriptures, uh, be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. It builds empathy, empathy. Right? It's love. Um, and I, th I think we, we, all, we all need that. And so I think quick to listen also includes like being willing and able to ask questions that signifies like I'm, I'm here to listen and to learn. It's just, it's a different posture. That second question, I'm going to say no. So the second question is, do you, is, believe, do you that believe that racism is more prevalent now than 10 years ago? No. And I think that's, so if you want a like secular, sociological, but really fascinating look at race, um, I would suggest a book called Racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields. And one of the things they talk about, they, she, uh, the primary author, Karen, uh, Barbara Fields, uh, likens racism and racecraft to witchcraft and the ways that it can like switch form and, and it's kind of nebulous but but like it, it takes what is it takes what is uh, mystical and somehow makes it physical and people believe it even though it's not right and so um, I, I don't think racism is more prevalent now I think people more people can be heard on more platforms. Um, do, do I think that the environment is more toxic? Absolutely. Uh, but is racism more prevalent? Nah. Um, and the last one, I'll just say this, because I really do want to address that last one in like, a se like 30 seconds. You want me to clock you? You cannot make the process or the conversation of racism less uncomfortable because at the heart of it, racism is sin, sin is idolatry, destroying idols is never comfortable, nor should it be. So whether you're talking about sexual sin, social sin, personal sin, you are talking about destroying the idols of the heart, which means there will always be violent pushback from your flesh. So that conversation is always going to be uncomfortable. But a Christian leans into the discomfort, knowing that it's not the blows from a brother, but rather the loving, refining fire of a heavenly father who wants to conform them to the likeness of Jesus. Um, so that's that. This may be my flesh speaking, but let me learn more by giving a little pushback. If the conversation is happening within the context of believers, 
Um, how can we foster gracious conversation? Because speaking for myself, when I hear these headlines that come out, I automatically assess, am I in the target? Am I the one who is privileged? Am I the one who is exercising racism? Because a lot of the discussion, the terms used, the blogs put out, the articles written aren't always clear. So I'm asking myself, which I think is a good question to, to ask, anytime a sin is brought to light, is that sin alive in me? But a lot of times I think that the sin they're attacking isn't necessarily within the individual or within this local community, how, but it's easy to get so emotionally invested, and this is a emotionally heavy topic and discussion to have, and it's easy to overreact and fight back saying, that's not me, I'm not doing that, so you must be wrong, you must be in the wrong. How do we bridge that, that gap? And we're out of time. <laughs> so, like, um, I feel like I can relate just because of the kind of headlines that I've seen even for, like, people, you know, that I can relate to and things that I don't like to see my, like, people like me doing because of the case that I'm trying to make for myself. Um, you know, I, I, I try to not take it personally, one, um, because those people aren't me, you know? That's not who I am, and that's not who I identify with. I identify with Christ, so that should be what I am most focused about. Um, and if we're talking among believers, I think we can be compassionate about, you know, um, the things that we're all dealing with and just being considerate. So we do have to have a measure of introspection in order to be humble enough to approach others and genuinely empathize with which It was goes to a point, Sean, you were saying that I wanted to, to echo when we enter in these, these discussions, we might, might call them arguments. You're making arguments it's best if we can understand our, I don't want to call them my opponent, but the other person in the best possible light. So if, if there is a range of meanings in the terms that they're using, why not give them the benefit of the doubt and come to the conversation understanding their best use of the terms rather than attacking them for for what may not be a personal attack. Yeah, so this one's a little hard for me, and I'll just say that and like let you just deal with that as you will. Like on a personal level, like and for all of us, I would just say this: like the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? You think it's not you. You're convinced it's not you, and then slowly the Holy Spirit's like, "Bruh, it's you." <laughs> Right? Like, that just happens. And it's not, like, my wife is like, you're really selfish. And I'm like, are you kidding? 
All that I do, oh yeah, nah. Um, I'm really selfish. And so I think just really allowing that the heart is, will deceive you. And part of the reason that it's uncomfortable is because in a very good way, we've come to understand as racism as virulent and evil, wicked and of the devil. And so we don't want to be that. And so we're really defensive about being yeah. that. Yeah. Now, granted, there's a lot going on culturally where like we've, we've gone... We've swung into madness in like over sense hypersensitivity to things. Like we can acknowledge that. Like there has been a swing into madness when you've got a school telling college students they can't dress up like cowboys, right? Like we've entered into madness. Um, but at the same time, your heart—it's deceiving you, right? The flesh wants you to continue sinning, and the best way to do that is for you to say, "This is not a problem I have." Right? And then the second thing is just this, like, so we've been talking about it in very, uh, in the sky type, like, academic sort of theoretical type terms, but like, racism gets people killed. Hmm. Racism is not just like an idea, like, racism has a toll on bodies, right? Like, and, and it is... Like, being afraid that you might be somehow complicit in this is understandable. But also remember, like, when people speak with passion, it's because, like, I've, I've been in situations where I was pulled over in my neighborhood in Northern Virginia, and... Everybody's first thought, first is like, not all cops, you're right, not all cops, fine. I've been in the situation where in my own neighborhood, the question that was asked was not license or registration, but where are you going and why are you here in my neighborhood? Like, I've had family members, like, where, <clears throat> where they have been confronted, not by, but by racist people in a situation where if it goes down, they're the ones in trouble. And so I get it. It's troubling and it hurts. But like when, when we come at it with a certain passion, it's because like our bodies and the bodies of our families are at stake. Like we feel that really. And, and I know you feel it really too. Like I don't want to be misunderstood. I love all people. Like I get that. But, but maybe like, and that's the listening with compassion, right? Listening is like, just for a second, look outside yourself and look at what we're saying, right? Like, with Trayvon Martin, when George Zimmerman killed him in Sanford, Florida, right? That was five miles south of where my cousin, who was also 17, at the time, lived. And so when I saw that article, I saw my cousin who walks around, who hangs out at night with his friends, who is a good, godly young man. Like, I saw my cousin in that story, and I, real, and I knew, I knew it could just have easily have been Bradley and not Trayvon. And so my response to that was not like, 
theoretical or what are you saying here. It was very visceral and very emotional, right? And honestly, like, it's over and over again. It's exhausting. And so, you, you know, like, I, I guess I'm asking for compassion. I'm also asking just to realize, like, there is levels. There are levels of concern here. Um, and... And so sometimes, like, your comfort has to come second. That's all. Like, and, and sometimes my comfort has to come second. But I think in this conversation, it's like, how do we frame this so nobody's offended? <laughs> Meanwhile, people keep dying. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, people keep starving and getting swept under rugs. Meanwhile, people keep uh, getting kicked out of rent-controlled apartments in cities uh, for $150,000, or $150,000, yeah. No, not in DC, for $450,000 flats. And a gin, a gin bar. Not even just a bar with all of the drinks, a gin bar. Right? And so it's very real, like when it's kids homeless because that project got torn down. So just understand, like, the intensity that you're experiencing or you're perceiving um, is coming from experience. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm, well, I'm not sorry, but like. He's a preacher. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, you heard what I was saying. I hear you saying both the person and the position are important, but to first identify with the person before arguing a position. Yeah, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of things yeah. to understand. Like, you don't have to have this conversation. Um, some of us live this conversation every day. It's not a conversation, right? Um, and so thank you for coming, um, but also understanding It's, it's, big, it's complicated. Uh, quickly to wrap up, let me go through a few resources that uh, you may want to make note of, and I will try and make these slides available on, on the, uh, the website's downloads. And when you go to listen to this online, you uh, also have the option to, to view these slides. Sean, I know you had mentioned some of these. If you want to comment on any of them, uh, go right ahead. I, so, uh, go ahead. oh, you later. Go for okay. it. Okay. Um, I read Glory Road this summer, and it was outstanding. Very much enjoyed it. It's 10 mini autobiographies of uh, black pastors who have made the theological journey into the Reformed uh, aspect of the faith, and it was great to, to get to know each of these. Two that I have not yet read but that are on my list are Letters Across the Divide, so it's uh, a black and a white man, a man, Brothers in Christ uh, talking about uh, the issue and then also the American church in black and white. Uh, each of those are a few years old, so they may not have the most recent headlines in view when they write, but uh, the topic is still very much um, on target. And then some of your... Yeah, uh, Jarvis Williams is a professor at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Professor of Theology, very sound, very 
He's just, he's a genius. He's brilliant. One new man is him unpacking a theology of reconciliation and a, and a practice of reconciliation. Divided by Faith is a very uh, sociological look at racialization in America by Michael Emerson, who is the president of North, oh, I forget the seminary in Chicago. The seminary is amazing, and it was one of the only evangelical seminaries uh, that didn't leave the city center uh, when urbanization happened. Um, and so they, they do good work. And the city, Michael Emerson, is great. The book is really insightful. It's, I'm, it's not going to give you like, so what do I do with this? If you're looking for that. He wrote another book called United by Faith. Not as good, but I think he's trying to do that there. How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind is one of a handful of books that will help globalize the church for us. Um, and looking back at history and seeing things I didn't know. Um, I didn't know that the church was in Africa before colonists were. Like, I mean, I knew like North Africa, but I'm talking like Ethiopia, um, southern parts of Africa were uncovering archaeology that the church was there before. Um, and one of the reasons that we get colonialism justified is the spread of Christianity. Um, but anyway, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind is readable. It's a good academic work. Um, and I, I, would, I, would, I would say important, even though I don't usually know what people mean when they say important. <laughs> Very good. Uh, if you're looking for more uh, internet media, we've got blogs and podcasts to recommend. Uh, the Truth Table is three African-American women who, uh, in some form or fashion, are in ministry uh, from the Reformed world. And uh, I, the Bar Network, I've, I've become a quick fan of Dwayne Atkinson's interviews. He interviews anybody and everybody within reformed Christian circles that have influenced him and you, you get to hear you, you get a lot from those 10 15 minute interviews uh, and then you have links to the MLK 50 uh, media as, as well as all the follow-up articles that came in the wake of that and not as a direct effect but somewhat of an effect of, of that the statement on social justice in the gospel and then finally I cannot recommend highly enough the music of, of Shylin. Uh, I know <laughs> uh, my kids love it um, as much as I do. It's immensely theological, but couched within, you might call it a black, but it's a, a Christian hip-hop. It's hip-hop. Yeah. But it's like theology and hip-hop. Can I, can I back it up real quick, one slide, just because I want to give yeah, yeah. fair warning. I love the Sisters of the Truth's Table, but the Truth's Table is like it's like you're sitting down at like the beauty shop. <laughs> no, I'm I'm just telling you because you're gonna go in and you're gonna be like, what did Neil? <laughs> like, not all the conversations are for y'all, but you get to listen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. How about that? I'm I I just want to be for real, real, because when you when you listen to it, um, if you listen to it, uh. 
you're, you're probably at some points going to get angry. But just, just, just keep listening if you choose. Like, anyway, I just wanted to give, because those sisters are incredible. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Uh, and if you are looking for uh, Hispanic influence, Emilio Ramos pastors a church in Texas, and you can listen to his sermons on Sermon Audio. And uh, you may hear Adriel Sanchez on, as a co-host of the White Horse Inn, as well as now co-hosting with Michael Horton, another podcast called Core Christianity. Um, f- fantastic uh, pastor and fantastic podcast to, to definitely partake in. Any last words before we close? Well, thank you again for, for being here, for your contribution, for being my brother and sister in Christ. Thank you all for, for participating with us. And uh, as we close, let me, let me pray for us. Father God, we, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, for his righteousness here on earth and the, the passion that he completed for our salvation. Thank you for uniting us, adopting us as your children and making us one family, those who were, all of us were afar off, and now that you have brought us near. I pray, Lord, that everything that was said and done here tonight was honoring to you, and I pray that you would continue to take the truths that you have revealed in your word and work them over in our hearts. Let your spirit um, mold and shape us to the image of Christ, even as we leave here this evening. Give us mercies as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.